0: Welcome to All The Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All The Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So, I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, Stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is part one of a two-part interview with Steve Gleason and his wife, Michelle Verisco. Steve played football for the New Orleans Saints and was considered a hero for his work both on and off the field. At the age of 34, he was diagnosed with ALS and given two to five years to live. Weeks later, he found out his wife, Michelle, was pregnant with their first child. In the months that followed, Steve began recording himself and life lessons for their unborn son, Rivers. This footage would ultimately turn in to the award-winning documentary film, Gleason. Well, it's been eight years since his terminal diagnosis, and Steve has had two kids, started a foundation, passed bipartisan legislation named in his honor, helped create the largest ALS research project in the world, he starred in a Super Bowl commercial, interviewed Pearl Jam, and most recently, he received the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor. All of this while losing the ability to walk, talk, and breathe. If that doesn't blow your mind, maybe this will. When Steve learned he would lose the ability to speak, he recorded his vocabulary by voice banking. Today, you will hear Steve's synthetic voice that he activates with his eyes. Here's today's interview with my superhuman friend, Steve Gleason. Steve, welcome to All the Wiser. I'm so glad that you're here today. And I think right off the bat, I have to share that you're actually a big part of why I set out on this journey and found the courage to launch the podcast and the project In the process of working on Gleason with you and sharing your story with Michelle and traveling around the country and seeing the impact that a personal story can have on the people, you know, who who have the opportunity to hear it and see it was really profound.
1: First off, I want to thank you for taking the time to interview me. I will try not to stutter. I also love, love, love how I say Kimi, 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 Kimi,
0: Kimi, 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 So Steve, I think the large majority of people out there don't understand what it means to live with ALS. Can you walk us through an average day in your life?
1: As far as a day in the life with me, Michelle, and our family. I think it's important to understand that there are a few very different time periods over the past eight years, and we should look at a day from each of those time periods. So if you'd like Kimi, I think we should look at a day from when I was newly diagnosed, a day from when I was losing the ability to breathe on my own, and finally, we should look at a day from this week. Not only are those three very different days, Those are almost three different lifetimes from our perspective. In early 2011, not long after I was diagnosed, I think each day could be summed up by the word, disbelief. At the time, Michelle and I were in disbelief, because, I felt perfectly fine, other than my right fingers were kind of getting stuck when I was typing. But, I wasn't sick. I felt great. This time was even more unbelievable for Michelle. She couldn't see anything out of the ordinary, and yet, a few weeks earlier, a doctor had told us I would be dead in two or three years. If we look at a day from 2011, I was in my final semester of business school at Tulane, so I continued that effort, but during my free time, I had to make a decision would i spend all my time left would i spend the time searching for ways to be cured or would i try to do whatever i really wanted to check off the bucket list the decision that michelle and i made and i recommend this to everyone who is recently diagnosed we decided to seek solutions to the disease but we also made the decision to go do some epic adventures We love the adventure. So, during that early time after diagnosis, my days were spent trying to accept this diagnosis, even though I felt perfectly fine. During the day I was researching off-road four x four camper vans, because, even though I had ALS, and Michelle was pregnant, we were going on a 15,000 mile road trip to Alaska. And late in the wee hours of the night, I was researching solutions to the disease. If we skip ahead, three years, we'll see a very different type of day. By this time, I had lost the ability to walk, and I was losing the ability to talk. More critically, I was losing my ability to breathe. These days were agonizing and terrible. Dark Days Days of Suffering A day in this life was endlessly long. For example, brushing your teeth. While this is important for everyone, it only takes an ordinary person 2 or 3 minutes to brush their teeth. As important as brushing your teeth might be, it's an afterthought for every person that is listening today. During a day in this life, I remember brushing my teeth would take 15-20 minutes. Logistical questions like, how are we going to get toothpaste in my mouth? Then the question would be, how the hell are we going to get toothpaste out of my mouth? As frustration mounted, the next question would be, why the fuck are we even using toothpaste? So if we stick with brushing my teeth, over the next several months, we got advice, and our own routine evolved. We figured out a mouthwash concoction, switched to a different toothbrush, and developed better brushing techniques so that it only took 3 or 5 minutes to brush my teeth. So, for the audience to understand, that was several months, even years, to develop an efficient routine for just simply brushing my teeth. But that same deterioration was happening for every aspect of our life. Taking a shower, taking a shit, getting dressed, getting in the car, getting comfortable in bed. Every aspect of our lives was in chaos. Another decision that was wearing on me and Michelle was, if I should get a tracheostomy and a ventilator, and if I was going to trache, how long should we wait? Remarkably, and mostly because of the people around me. We were able to pass the Steve Gleason act during these darker days. I was also able to interview Pearl Jam, I struggled but was mostly able to develop a relationship with Rivers, and we still traveled fairly regularly. The problem was, as exciting as some of these adventures and accomplishments were, I could barely breathe. It was terribly difficult for Michelle and I to communicate beyond the immediate next step in our day. At this point, Michelle was my caretaker and night, and the only way I could alert her was a mumbled agonizing moan. We weren't getting any sleep. Exhaustion was overwhelming us. I remember lying in bed needing to have my leg moved, but I didn't want to wake Michelle up, so I would hope to fall asleep. But, hope is just a word. The nights were endless, and the days were exhausting and formidable, for both me and Michelle. We decided to trach in mid-2014 and while it was probably the most terrifying thing I've done in my life, it ended up being the correct decision, for our family. By the time I got the trach, my body, and my muscles were basically fully progressed. Meaning, essentially that I had nothing left to lose. And, me, you might be sad about that, but it was really one of the best places to be. People with nothing left to lose, have nowhere to go but up. Our situation would continue to improve for the next five years, and things continue to improve today. Looking at a day in our life today, we slowly developed procedures that would help me feel like I have overcome much of the difficulties of ALS. Today, we have a wonderful team of caretakers, so Michelle doesn't caretake. We have developed routines and procedures for every aspect of every day. It takes a couple minutes to brush my teeth. It takes 10 to 15 minutes to get in bed, and I usually sleep great each night. I go poo-poo every morning, and I shower every day. With the essentials that I just mentioned covered, that allows me to be much more productive and purposeful each day. I'm busy every day, but a good busy. For the most part, I'm working on projects that I'm excited about. I have a truly spectacular care team, they get me anywhere at any time. We often fly commercial airlines and we've helped other families with ALS do the same. I pick Rivers up from school each day of the week, I do lunch duty at his school twice a month, and I just did literacy lunch, where I read stories to his class for the fourth year in a row. We regularly have family meals, and Rivers has developed into a great, well-rounded, well-behaved, socialized, and really happy seven-year-old boy. Michelle and I must be doing something right.
0: I think you and Michelle are doing a ton right. He's an amazing kid, which is a testament to you guys. And I'm super jealous that you take a poop every day. So speaking of rivers, you and Michelle decided to have rivers right after your diagnosis. And you just had a baby girl, Gray, who I got to cuddle with last night, See in her bath this morning. What does fatherhood mean to you, Steve? And what are the ways and the times that you feel most connected to your kids?
1: Kimi, there is nothing more important to me than being a great father. Nothing. It's a difficult but rewarding responsibility. About a month after I was diagnosed, we found out Michelle was pregnant. At that point, We didn't know that there were ways to live with ALS, all we knew was, doctors told us I'd be dead in a couple years. Assuming I didn't have much time, I started recording video journals. That was the basis for the documentary film that was distributed by Amazon a couple years ago. I have hundreds of hours of video journals, where I tried to share as much of myself as possible. I tell stories of my life, my life with Michelle. I talk about everything from academics, to my philosophy on how to live a meaningful life, to how much I love them, my fears and shortcomings, music, sex, alcohol and drugs, God and religion, discipline, character and virtues, etc. When I started to lose my voice, and could no longer record video journals, I started a private blog, and have close to 500 journal entries for Gray and Rivers. Those journals are easily my favorite activity, and, while getting interviewed by you is pretty sweet Kimi, by far and away, the accomplishment that I am most proud of, are those journals for Rivers, Gray, and Michelle. I intended, to be an involved and active father, who makes a positive impact on my son. I pick him up from school every day, I help coach his teams, I help put him to sleep at night. Gray is not quite at that stage in life, but, to me, she is amazing. Truly amazing. I mean, I could just sit and stare at her all day. I love driving her around the house, and laying with her in bed. I'm excited to help guide her as she grows up. I believe it's a great time in our history to have a child, especially a daughter.
0: I could stare at her for hours too. (laughs) You wrote an article early on that really resonated with me on loss and gain through your journey with ALS. What is the greatest loss and what is the greatest gain? And before you answer that question, I have the article in front of me and I must say you are a beautiful writer and you always have been without question. It's one of your gifts in the world, Steve. So I am going to share your words. As someone who's lost most of his physical abilities over the past 20 months, I can tell you that the anticipation of loss is worse than the actual loss itself. I am hoping not to be fantastically optimistic with this letter, but to be realistic and possibly encouraging. In January 2011, I was losing the ability to run. At that time, I was so dreading that loss. I wasn't sure what I would do if I could no longer run. When it finally happened, I was forced to search myself for new avenues of joy. You see, I love to run. Not only that, I was really, really good at it. But new joyful avenues have emerged. Writing, photography, film. It has not been easy. I have needed a lot of support. We've had to be very creative, and the losses continue to mount, walking, playing guitar, typing. But with each loss, we have worked to find a beautiful replacement to the point where it feels less like loss and more like gain. Looking back now, what has been your greatest loss and what has been your greatest gain?
1: I have not thought about that editorial for years, Kimi. I'm happy you brought it up. Really the theme of the letter, which hopefully provided some hope to the employees that were about to lose their jobs, the theme was that, the anticipation of loss is greater, oftentimes much greater than the loss itself. It's hard to say what the greatest loss I've experienced is. I think the intimate one-on-one communication with people I was tied with before ALS must be up there. If I could talk, at some ordinary speed, I know some of my closest family and friends would appreciate that, but, without a doubt, not talking in the ordinary sense is not as bad as I once anticipated. Without a doubt. The greatest gain that I've experienced in the past 8 years is, my relationship with Rivers and Gray. Rivers only knows me with ALS, he doesn't miss my old voice, at least not at this point. He has grown up with me, so he's developed the patience to wait while I type, as opposed to ordinary people who aren't sure what to do with the uncomfortable silence while I type.
0: So, Steve, tell me about Michelle and how your relationship has changed over the past eight years.
1: Michelle is the real hero in the family, Kimi. Michelle is fierce and transparent. She's a fantastic mom. Michelle is absolutely amazing with our three-month-old daughter, Gray. While I've been pretty successful mobilizing people to find solutions, pass U.S. law, and inspire people, I'm not much help with a newborn. Michelle says crazy yogi paraphrases like, man it feels good to feel good. Through a mutual friend, we met at Jazz Fest in 2004. I was standing near the food vendor area, eating my jama jama, Minding my own business, and she walked intently up to me, stared at me for a second or two, and said, Geez, you're a lot cuter than you look on TV. No, hi, I'm Michelle. Nice to meet you. Nothing. It was awesome, and the start of something special. The last eight years have been as crazy a roller coaster as anyone's ever been on. During the seven years before I was diagnosed, We literally had two fights. That includes us traveling around the world for six months, being with each other 24-7. We were like beans and rice. During the past eight years since I've been diagnosed, we've had a bit more than two fights. Really, the thing that your audience likely doesn't quite understand is, The people that really undergo the most difficult struggle are the spouses of people diagnosed with ALS. The person diagnosed with ALS really, they don't have any choice in what is happening, and, since they start to lose their physical abilities, the burden, ends up falling on the spouse, or some other family members, like the parents, or in the worst cases the children of the person diagnosed so while the person with als is losing their abilities and getting the sympathy of everyone else the people who are really doing all the work and getting no recognition are the spouses of folks with als i have said this publicly at various times and it's worth repeating for your audience kimi ALS is a remorseless and humiliating disease. It can annihilate families. Spouses become unrecognizable to each other, veiled in frustration, anger, and shame. In most cases, Michelle and me included, life begins to unravel into chaos, as the person with ALS becomes more reliant on their spouse, and, before anyone realizes it, Frustration and resentment and shame end up clouding the entire relationship. Michelle and I certainly weren't immune to this. During our lowest points four to five years ago, we were not communicating transparently, and we weren't able to understand or empathize with each other's fears or pain. It's really true for all relationships, if you can't communicate honestly and if you can't have compassion for the other person's pain, you have no relationship, but ALS magnifies and intensifies that principle. Michelle and I were in the low point, our breaking point. Fortunately, we found a way to thaw the ice, start communicating openly, and understand each other. Things are very different than before I was diagnosed. And we definitely struggle, but we're in a good place. We communicate well, and we're a tightly forged team.
0: All right, that was a great, great answer. I know you and your team pulled off an incredible feat, one of many, I should say, in the creation and passing of the Steve Gleason Act. The Steve Gleason Act, for those of you who don't know, is a congressional act which ensures people with diseases like ALS have access to speech devices. So Steve, if you can explain why this is so critical and maybe juxtapose in your own life what it is like with technology and what your day-to-day would be without it.
1: In 2014, there was a decision by Medicare to adhere to some antiquated rules. Because of this lack of insight, it essentially turned a normal tablet, like the one I am using now, from a powerful relatively inexpensive tool of productivity, into an entirely useless $20,000 voice box. Essentially, it turned back time to technology from the early 1990s. Those rules would also have taken a patient's communication device from them in a hospital, nursing home, or while in hospice. We heard stories of people who could not contact help in emergencies, who had their only method of communication removed while in the hospital, and who could no longer use their device for simple emails. Although I never intended to get involved in legislative issues, This situation could not be ignored. So, we went to Washington and were told the only way to resolve this quickly was through new legislation. The Steve Gleason Act ensures that technology, like what I'm using to communicate with you, cannot be taken away from people who desperately need it. Of course care is essential to my everyday life. But, without equipment and technology, I would not be alive. How is that for a juxtaposition?
0: I remember at some point you said um, so eloquently that with technology, teachers continue to teach, architects continue to design, parents continue to read books to their children. And it was just so profound to think about it in those really clear and visual ways. So, I mean, that, that work is just so beyond impactful. And insane in this environment that you guys were able to pretty much unanimously pass lasting legislation. Um, so kudos on that one. Steve, without question, you're seen as a superhero by most people who know your story and follow your story. Aside from ALS, what is a vulnerability that you've challenged to overcome?
1: Blue baby. Good question, Kimmy. This is probably a good question for Michelle. Ha <laughs> ha. I'm often selfish. I get focused on my agenda and forget about other people in their agenda. I struggle with being polite and being understanding or sensitive to others feelings. Many times with the people I'm closest with, I'm innately not very transparent. Your listeners who have seen our documentary might think that I'm talking crazy, but I've had to work on sharing my shortcomings and vulnerabilities with people since I was young. I should talk with my parents more. I'm obstinate. And I procrastinate something terrible.
0: Thank you for that. And I think there's so much power in sharing our vulnerabilities, especially in a position like yours where there's this sort of outside persona and perception, which is so powerful and positive, just to be honest who you are because we're all so complex. So I really appreciate you sharing that. You know, one thing that I think about is so many people reaching out to you for advice in their own adversity. And certainly people have challenges every day. I mean, we all do but 99% of them pale in comparison to having ALS. Do you have to dig deep to encourage them, or is the perspective of all adversity being challenging, not lost on you?
1: This is a great question, Kimi. I get so many people who will tweet to me, saying something similar to this. After seeing what you go through, Steve, who can ever even think about complaining about their life? I think that is pretty unfair. Not only to the pain of the person tweeting, but also, to all ordinary people. I've thought a lot about suffering, and, I know this. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or wealthy, white or black, talented or untalented, it doesn't matter if you have ALS or not. Every human experiences suffering. And some people who have any type of chemical imbalance, or mental illness, they suffer mightily to stay positive. It doesn't matter who you are, or if you have ALS, every human experiences suffering. While I'm not saying we should complain all the time, but, it's our most powerful tool as humans to share our pain and vulnerabilities with each other.
0: What are the things you miss the very most? Specific foods, running, anything um, that was a loss along this way that you just miss, miss, miss? And how do you see yourself in your dreams at night?
1: It's interesting, Kimi. I rarely get caught up in the things that I cannot do. I suppose that means that I'm either really stubborn or I like to think that If a person can find the way to live a fulfilling and meaningful life, things like walking around or talking, fall away is less important to a person, if they can feel they are making an impact in other ways. That being said, I'd say that, I miss being able to do odds and ends around the house. Things like, hang Christmas lights, or make a campfire, or barbecue on the grill, or do yard work. I also miss being able to really coach Rivers, in his sports. I'd really love to be able to communicate faster, and, occasionally I'd love to just destroy a massive burrito, or like 10 sushi rolls. But I think the point is, people don't necessarily need to walk or talk, as long as they have other avenues to be impactful and productive. You bring up a fascinating psychological topic with, what my dreams are like. It's pretty crazy, but I have never had a dream where I have ALS. I'm always perfectly ordinary in my dreams. And I'm often on epic adventures, like, whitewater rafting, and snowboarding or surfing, and hiking through majestic mountains. I mean, I think that is insane. I don't know much about psychology, but it seems like, especially when things were really terrible four to five years ago, and I was really feeling imprisoned, my unconscious just took over, and during sleep, just set me free.
0: That's beautiful. As far back as you can remember, what was something you wanted to be or do as an adult um, that you weren't able to do? And if you haven't done it, will you try to fulfill that in some way?
1: Since I was quite young, I've been fascinated with the universe and the cosmos. I entertained the idea of being a pilot, like my grandfather and my uncle, then trying to become an astronaut. But I got a little sidetracked with my football career. I believe that it is possible. With the recent attempts to commercialize traveling to space, I believe that it is possible for a person like me to go to space. I think I'll go to space. That will be an epic day, especially for people with disabilities.
0: All right, last question. Where do you hope to be 10 years from now?
1: I think the general public and newly diagnosed people really hold out hope for a cure for ALS. This instinct is natural. While the research project we helped launch, called Answer ALS, has become the largest ALS research project in history, I'm not holding out hope for a cure to save me. The truth is, we have no idea when a cure for ALS will happen. Humans have invested, rightly I believe, people have invested hundreds of billions of dollars into cancer research, but people are still dying of cancer. I want to be clear, I'm not saying those dollars have been invested in vain, I'm simply saying that we do not know when treatments or a cure will arrive. What we do know, Kimi, is that, with the exponential advancements in technology and equipment, it certainly is possible to continue living productive and meaningful lives, despite an ALS diagnosis. Without any legitimate medical cure or treatments for ALS, technology can serve as a cure. It's pretty simple, really, Kimi. Without the technology and equipment I'm using, I'd be dead, simple as that. I'd call that a cure. Also, I'm not the only example. We have dozens of others who are continuing to live. Despite a terminal diagnosis, as it has for the past hundred years, we do know that technology will continue to become exponentially more powerful. It will continue to grow exponentially less expensive. We don't know when a cure will arrive, but we do know that these technological advancements will continue. I'm one of only a few people in the United States that can drive their wheelchair with their eyes, but we're about to provide this same driving technology to other people. Twelve months from now, anyone who needs the technology to drive with their eyes, they will have it. We're working to help develop artificial intelligence, virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. These types of developments are important because they can help connect and enhance relationships. Not only that, there is no limit on where this technology can go. Ten years from now, I think it would be spectacular if there were hundreds. Or thousands of people living productively and triumphantly, yes triumphantly, using robotics, artificial intelligence, and alternate realities, despite ALS. Should we schedule a follow-up podcast interview for 2029 Kimi? Put a reminder on your phone.
0: It's on the calendar. Thank you, Steve for being here. And again, thank you for the honor and privilege to play a part in sharing your story over the years. I'm excited to bring it to a new audience today. And I love you and Michelle and your family very much. And I'm going to fire off some questions. And it basically goes like this. Favorite band.
1: Pearl Jam.
0: Favorite place.
1: Favorite city is Chicago.
0: Favorite sound?
1: Our daughter, Gray, laughing.
0: Favorite curse word?
1: Holy shit balls!
0: And then I'm also going to ask you, where can we find you and follow you on social media and learn more about Team Gleason?
1: Listeners can find our website at teamgleason.org. You can follow me on Twitter. I use the handle... At Team Gleason. And Facebook and Instagram are also Team Gleason. Michelle is also a good follow. Her Instagram handle is Mvarisco. M V A R I S C O.
0: Alright, that's perfect. We did it! Make sure I get before. Today's interview supports Team Gleason. We talked about it a lot in the interview, but Steve believes that technology saved his life. Imagine you cannot speak. No, really, imagine it. Take a moment and think about if you couldn't talk anymore. You couldn't express your emotions when you're having a great day, a bad day. You couldn't even email or reach out to somebody that way. Your thoughts and your soul and everything within you is silenced. Well, what Team Gleason does is provide assistive technology to people with neuromuscular diseases or injuries. They're giving voice to the voiceless and allowing people to live purposeful lives. They are also doing a ton of other cool stuff, which you can learn about at teamgleason.org. On a final note, check out our show notes for today's episode. Steve is one of the best writers I know, and he was open and kind enough to share the letter he wrote to his closest friends and family, when he was diagnosed with ALS. It's beautiful and worth taking the time to read. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.